1: Because for all the years that we served in the military, all the years that our frontline civilians served overseas, all the years that our police, firefighters, attorneys, etc., have even known anything about how we engage overseas, we've said we leave no one behind. And then we left a bunch of people behind.
2: I'm Jason Kander. This is Majority 54. This is our last episode of 2021. And I wanted to close out the year by talking about something that has fallen out of the news, tragically so, and that is the ongoing evacuation, largely private evacuation operation in Afghanistan. And so I asked my friend Sean Vandiver to come on. Sean is the founder of the Afghan EVAC Coalition, which you're about to learn a lot more about. And I asked him to come on to bring the audience up to speed on everything that's gone on since August, because it is a lot and what is going on now and what needs to happen next. Sean is one of the democratic veterans who several years ago decided that democratic candidates who had not served in the military needed to be more versant in the military and in national security. And so you're part of Truman National Security Project that helped a lot of candidates who hadn't served just understand the lingo of the military and and that kind of thing. You're also a Navy veteran um, what would you do in the Navy?
1: I was a fire controlman, so I uh, got to work on and operate, operate, and maintain the weapon systems and radar on uh, warships. So I was on a cruiser and a, a frigate.
2: Okay, so then I'm jumping way forward in your life to August of 2021. Um, you know, everybody knows what went on in August of, of 2021 with regard to uh, the evacuation of Afghanistan. But the thing is, is that a lot of people think that that's where the evacuation of Afghanistan ended. And they think that that's where the Afghan story ended. Tell me how you got involved uh, in Afghan evac.
1: Sure. So uh, I was actually sitting right here at this computer or right here at this desk. And I had just started an MBA program because I really wanted to run out that GI Bill. And I got a text from my friend Lucky, a response from my friend Lucky, who I know had gone back to Kabul. And he said, brother, I'm on top of a mountain in Irgun. The Taliban has us surrounded we're running out of ammunition. I think I'm going to die. Will you please promise to grant my last wish and help get my family back to San Diego? And Lucky and I had met through civic engagement. You know, I'm passionate about civic engagement and, and standing up for what you believe in in your country in your city. Uh, so I spent the day sobbing, and then I texted Ruben Gahego after trying to after the airport fell, after trying to like get commercial flights for his family, and he had put me. Well, in into-
2: hold on. Let's 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 pause there for a second because. A lot of people don't realize. I think most people think that when uh, the airport when the airport fell, and when you say airport fell, you mean when the Americans left.
1: No, no, yeah, no, no. Right? I mean, so the, I'm talking about August. Oh, you're 13th. talking prior to that. Yeah, I'm talking August 14th. You're okay,
2: you're not talking 31st, you're talking 14th. Yeah. Okay, got it.
1: So I'm talking the 14th Luck Lucky's texting me on the 14th. The airport falls on I think the 15th. I I had spent the 14th, you know, sobbing upset about my four, poor friend Lucky and trying to get him and or get his family flights out. And they were like $2,000 each. So I raised a bunch or I got uh, commitments for a bunch of money and was ready to ready to do that. By the time the 15th rolled around, I woke up in the morning and the airport had fallen and uh, Ruben had connected me to another group of folks that were trying to do charter flights. Uh, I got together with them and I'd put up a form on Twitter that said, if you're in Afghanistan and need help use this form and it had a, had secure document upload, which was the, it was the only form doing that at the time. And then I put up a form taking in pledges Uh, and pledges were important because there was a lot of people that were trying to take advantage or that were raising money, but they didn't know what they were going to spend it on. And I'm a, while I was in the Navy, in addition to being a fire controlman, I became an emergency manager. And I know that in disaster, people try to take advantage. You get profiteers showing up, you get people who are sometimes well-intentioned and sometimes not. Uh, doing things that maybe aren't uh, helpful. Not all help is helpful, as my wife likes to tell me. And so those two things kind of exploded. Jack McCain tweeted them. He and I were working on this together. And, um, and away we went. Uh, and what we noted after a few days was that there were all these groups popping up trying to do stuff. And you know as well as I do that when you have people trying to do stuff half a world away, if they're not coordinating, even if they're if, even if they have the very best of intentions, they can get people killed. So I started doing these 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Pacific time coordination calls where we were pulling groups in and just letting them talk, acting like a town hall. Like, what are you working on? What are you working on? And, you know, my, my day job is at a management consulting company, and i would taken time off to do this stuff, and uh, we were on a tight meeting. So rather than sit around and complain at each other, we gave people 45 to 90 seconds to give a quick operational update Tell us what you're working on. Tell us what your needs are. Tell us if you have any questions and let's go. So we did that um, all through August and we uh, convened a couple like communications workshops to make sure that as we were uniting under the moniker of Afghan evac, we knew what we were going after, right? We wanted to reduce the noise going at government. We wanted to make sure that we were able to center Afghans and help Afghans on the ground succeed. We weren't, we were suppressing egos. We didn't, I didn't give a shit if you were a if you're a senator, or if you're a you know you're a lance corporal, if everybody's in this for the right reasons, and we don't need to try to impress anybody with whatever fancy person we've met with. It was through some, kind of some of those tenants that we were able to succeed through August and band together and get people either you know secure transportation to the airport through the gate, manifested on a flight, uh, and on to uh, further care.
2: And and so that people understand what you founded was a coalition because a lot of people like myself kind of inadvertently started groups that were doing evac. And what you started was the, Hey, let's come together and make sure we're not stepping on each other. And that we're, you know, being efficient and uh, leveraging what, what each of us is able to do.
1: Exactly. Um, What's really important here is that each organization, you're a, you're a, uh, a high profile guy, you know how to get to people, but there's folks that were starting organizations all over the place. And they weren't – they didn't actually know what – some didn't actually know what they needed, like didn't know how to operate the levers of government to get to where they needed to go. And so what we thought would be useful, because I ran Veterans and Military Families for Biden in California, because through Truman and through various other organizations, there were networks of folks that could, could make things happen. We thought, let's bring all of these folks in and make sure that they're able to accomplish their goals. I didn't serve on the ground in Afghanistan so I didn't have a bunch of networks with folks but I knew that I could bring people together I knew that I could act as the convening authority and I knew that I could I knew that I could keep things on the I hoped that I could keep things on the rails long enough to find the success that we all sought
2: Well and just to give listeners an idea of the chaos of that I mean it's still there's still a degree of chaos for sure I mean and it's Afghanistan there's a permanent degree of chaos but but the <laughs> the, the level of chaos of that of that last 2 weeks of August because what we were all doing was, we were all networking so hard, trying to figure out who is the person I need to talk to to get my Who's people got out. The key. And yeah, and not even like to get my people, at that moment, it was to get my people inside the walls of an airport on the other side of the world, right? How do I do that from here? And in order to do that, we were all just talking to so many different people that I can remember getting woken up what was in the middle of the night here, what was during the day in Afghanistan. And I picked up my phone and it was a, uh, a German vice minister who I did not know, who said, uh, I'm calling because it is my understanding that you are in charge of the South gate. And I have, they yeah. <laughs> said, he said, I, I have a bus of German nationals that is circling the airport that obviously for safety reasons can't stop. And I need the South gate opened. And here's how crazy all of it was and how enmeshed we all were in it. I was like, okay, uh, I'm a little league coach from Kansas City. And that's where I am right now. I was like, but oddly enough, I actually know who you need to talk to. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, you know, hopefully that'll give people an idea of, of what that last two weeks of August was like.
1: Before August, if you would have told me that I would be sitting across the table from Republicans or working with Republicans on a national level issue or a global issue, I would have laughed in your face and told you that there's just the country's too divided. What those last two weeks of August, when I think about when I tried to think about the positive aspects, what those last two weeks of August taught me is that, Oh, our country still got it. Like we can have a bunch of people up on TV talking all the shit they want on C-SPAN. But when the American people decide to get together and do something, what I saw was the most American thing I've ever seen, regardless of political ideology, religious ideology, whatever, wherever you lived, whoever you believed in, whoever you loved, everybody was rowing in the same direction. And we put all of that stuff to the side. And every time something political popped up, it would get suppressed.
2: Yeah, people would smash it, right? They were just like, don't do that here.
1: That's right. And it's really important that we continue doing it. But those last two weeks of August were simultaneously the most heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, awful times. I can't tell you how many times I saw it. I can't tell you how, like, the trauma is still coming. I'm still in this pretty hard. And, like, the trauma is coming. It's waiting for us. But the overwhelming sense of partnership and unity that I felt with veterans and frontline civilians and folks from all over the country, and including people in government. What I found is that there's people in government all over the place that we're going through the same thing that we're going through. People, congressional caseworkers, there's a group of 350 congressional caseworkers that I meet with every week to this day to brief them up on what's going on. And they're just as fucked up as we all are.
2: Yeah, I mean, and if not, if not more, because they're so helpless. Because they, I've had lots of them come to me. Just as I'm sure you've had more come to you, saying I have all these cases, and I have no idea how to get these. I mean, they're coming to us, going, well, they we're only going to get these people out on a private, so-called cowboy charter flight, and those are that's congressional offices. So there's a helplessness here.
1: Yeah, and look, I want to be really clear about that, right? Like those folks are they're activists now. They're mm-hmm. activists that live in the house. And that's great. I mean, that's, there's nothing – I mean, you, you've you served in elected office. If your staffer cares about something, they really care about something, you're going to listen.
2: Yeah. To the point about trauma that you made a second ago, I can remember one of the guys I was working with on it, a reservist. He, he was a reservist who actually was put on orders to do this stuff. And he said to me, he said, man – I used to make fun of the idea that drone pilots could get PTSD without ever leaving the United States. He was like, I will never make fun of that idea again because I totally get it now.
1: That's right. Well, and Jason, think about this. So I've thought a lot about this drone pilot conundrum. And so I, I think I was kind of ready for this, but like when you think about what we were doing, you think about what drone pilots are doing when they're when impacting operations in a war zone, impacting operations where life or death decisions are being made. And then you go to the grocery store right afterward. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we started this coalition because we knew about that. And I know that there's a bunch of folks like you and I who are politically connected guys and like have some some experience in the, in in war and in how to navigate government and how to navigate international affairs. But there's also like West Point cadets who didn't know what they were doing, but just that they believed in this and they wanted to help. So we wanted to make sure this resulted in awards and adulation, not cuffs and confinement. And that's where like we kind of brought this organization together to get just create left and right laterals. And then what happened after that was really, I think, special.
2: Well, let's let's get into it because and I'll I'll introduce it with just my own experience, um, which I talked a little bit about on the last episode or a couple episodes ago, but people may not have heard it. You know, starting in August, I was trying to get a family of 12 out. My translator's family, um, the men in the family uh, had also worked with U.S. Forces. And I was, you know, one of the people trying various different things to shepherd them in by cell phone into the airport, working with the Marines on the ground, you know, signals and all that stuff and was unsuccessful. Me and my buddies, all of us were unsuccessful in getting our our Afghans, our allies in. And it was devastating. I, I remember, you know, when the, the last planes left, when the last American troops left, my guy on the ground, Rahim, knew exactly that's what had happened. And we were on the phone and I could, you know... I could hear his wife and his mother and his daughters crying and he was hopeless and I had no idea how to give him any hope. And at that moment, it certainly seemed to all of us like, well, that's the end of the evacuation mission. And I don't really know why, but I promised him I'm going to get I'm going to get you all out like we're going to work together and we're going to get you all out. Having no idea at that moment how I would. And eventually we did. And which is a story I'll tell in more detail another time. But that moment at least for me, it felt very hopeless and very upsetting, especially because at that moment, there was rightfully a, a, a big sort of celebration at the national level of the effectiveness of the units that had gone in and, and pulled off the largest airlift and, and, and humanitarian evacuation in human history. And so that's what everybody was talking about, was all of these wonderful, truly uplifting stories. And then there were people like me who were like, my people are still there and being hunted. So pick us up there.
1: Yeah, Jason, I got to tell you, man, that's similar experience, right? I remember, I remember sitting in the ops center that we had stood up listening to the, listening to the news stories and being like, I don't think it's time to do a victory lap yet. This is, you know, there's so many of us veterans and there's so many of us frontline civilians, folks all over the country who are still in this pretty deep. And what I was trying to do, what I thought we were going to be able to do was pivot over to resettlement, I believe that we would be able to get a bunch of people and I believe that we would and I know that Afghans are depending on you, me and every other veteran and frontline civilian out there that's in this to be really loud about how important it is to welcome these folks into our communities so that our the people who trust us, the American people uh, will buy into that because some some folks are afraid of new people and we got to help them understand that these Afghans are are part of the, the family. I quickly realized once I saw that General Milley was meeting with groups and I was like, well, what, which groups? Like we've got the kind of the, the critical mass of groups that are involved here. I'll fly out to DC and I'll jump into some meetings. And I worked with Task Force Pineapple and a few others to kind of get into the room. And I walked into the room and it, a friend of mine who who I've known for a decade happens to be the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Afghanistan and Pakistan and Central Asia. So she handles policy related to that part of the world.
2: It's uh, Z- Zimmerman?
1: Yeah, Becky Zimmerman. I
2: yeah, think, yeah. They, like, household name to those of us in this, in, this, yeah. in this effort, which is hilarious. Anyway, go ahead.
1: So I walk into this meeting and it's Becky and a bunch of others and a bunch of folks who are they're kind of to rage against the machine and they're mad. And what I observe in the meeting is that people are talking past each other. So we get state to agree to come to our coordination calls and to a data consolidation meeting that we were doing. And then I spent the next two days kind of working between the two parties, coming up with commitments that private groups could make to come to the table with government and talking with the government leaders uh, about, hey, this is kind of where we're going. This is kind of what we want to see. We're going to share these questions with you ahead of the next meeting, which was Wednesday. That's where the Afghan evac and U.S. government entity partnership was born. So with State Department in the lead, uh, DOD in the room, and we've since expanded to regular working group meetings with the Department of Defense and the National Security Council at the White House. Uh, So we're working through a lot of these issues, helping them kind of understand from the ground level uh, what this is like and, and that veterans are united. There's no cause. And you know this. There is no cause. That unites veterans across party lines, across ideologies, across everything, like this one, and we're not going anywhere. So let's have a discussion about what we need to get to to make sure that we're we're all aligned in the in the shared values. And what I found in government is that these folks also want to get these people out of Afghanistan. They Becky, I mean Becky's been working on this for her entire life. As have most of the folks involved.
2: But they're constrained. They're, const- they're 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 much more constrained.
1: They're constrained by law and policy.
2: Yeah, and and so the backdrop to all this is that you've got groups like like mine and several others who are just hustling like crazy the whole time, raising money, chartering planes, finding ways to secure people, move them around the country, avoid Taliban checkpoints. And, you know, get people inside airports in the country, get them onto planes that cost millions of dollars, find other countries that will accept them and let them land. Cause you, cause this is the thing people don't realize it's not just like, I mean, the, the airport is home base, right? Like the way the game works, and this is how I describe it. You tell me if, if you see it differently, the way the game works is if the local Taliban, or even if you're a high value target to them, you know, Kabul Taliban is looking for you, The way the game works is if they find you, you know, they can kill you, they can detain you, whatever. If they don't find you until you're inside an airport manifested on a flight that has a landing rights and a visa in another country, well, now it's an international incident if they do that. And so for the most part, that's the way you win the game. That's home base. That's the machinations that's happening behind the scenes. And so there was this, as I I feel that throughout, there's been this tension between these private rescue efforts and a u.s government that naturally wants to unify its foreign policy and not have you know other people they feel like acting i mean because like i'm out there doing shuttle diplomacy with albania and they're and they're going like hey we're trying to like actually have one voice is that a fair representation of the chaos that i think is to some extent still going on less so now
1: i think it's a rep- i think it's a fair representation of the chaos but i want to be clear like August 31st and before, I think there was one that the like, government oh, wasn't totally. really inter- interested in hanging out with us. After August 31st, the State Department has been a really good partner for Afghan EVAC. And we've been at the table. We've been able to get good, actionable information out of them. There's been a lot of misinformation out there. There's been a lot of misrepresentation out there from folks. Like There are certain groups that would tell you that Kosovo is ready to take people. Well, but then you get behind closed doors and you learn that Kosovo is ready to take people with U.S. government assurances that they're going to take care of these yeah, people. Yeah, I, I ran in headlong into that problem. Yeah, and, and what's, what becomes a challenge is that what we're hearing on the outside from name the country, right? Kosovo has been a really good partner. I want to be very clear about that. But other countries have come to us and said, yeah, we're ready to go. But we're not the diplomats. We're not seeing the, the back end like the the, the checklist, right? And, and if one of those checkboxes doesn't get ticked, it can't happen, and it results in frustration because we're all desperate. We're all working with folks who are dying and who are starving, and so waiting for diplomacy is also not really a um, a thing that people from the military care to do, yeah. right? Not we, our strong suit. Yeah, we're the types who are like, well, fuck it, we'll just go kick in the door and take care of this problem, and uh, and that's we're we're past that point.
2: My, my wife had to hide my passport. She was like, she didn't trust yeah. me to not like go to the border of Uzbekistan. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. And I was actually thinking about BetterHelp the other day because I was talking to a friend of mine and his therapist retired. It's something that, you know, people can find disorienting because they're like, oh, I got to start over with somebody new. Well, look, BetterHelp is a, is a terrific solution for that. I mean, if something is, is interfering with your happiness, if you've been to therapy in the past or even if you hadn't, you know, it makes sense to reach out to BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed therapist online. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's, it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And you know BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So for my buddy, that's really important. You're going to make it super easy to change counselors so you can find the right fit. And it's more affordable than traditional counseling and financial aid is available. Look, we want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at BetterHelp.com M54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash M54.
0: So if you've been listening to this show for a while, you have heard us talk about our Helix mattresses. But Helix has left a bedroom and started making sofas. They're all over your house, people. They launched a new company called Allform, and they're already making the best sofas we've ever seen. I've got one in my office and one in my apartment.
2: So what makes an Allform sofa really cool? Well, for starters, it's the easiest way you can customize a sofa using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. You can pick your fabric, and it's spill, stain, and scratch resistant. The sofa color, the color of the sofa size and shape to make sure that it's perfect for you and your home. They got armchairs and love seats all the way up to an eight seat sectional. So there's something for everybody. And you can always start small and buy more seats later on if you want your all form sofa to grow and change with you when you move.
0: They have, you know, so many colors and fabrics to choose from that you can match it with things that are already in in your house or your apartment. And it's so easy to put together.
2: Not only is it easy to put together, you finish putting it together and you just put together like a sofa and you feel like really handy. To find your Perfect sofa. Check out allform.com slash majority54. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority54. That brings us to to some extent where we are now. I'm going to try to summarize this real quick and tell me what I miss. There, there are thousands of people on US military bases waiting to be resettled in the United States. This is both overseas and mostly in the United States. There are thousands of people at like lily pad sites, which is what they kind of refer to as like, as people try to make their way in their refugee journey to the United States. And there are people in countries where they're awaiting to be processed, but there's not enough staff to process them. So for instance, our first flight that we did got 373 people to Albania. It's now 376 because there's been three babies born. And so they those people are, are still there and have not been processed. And their embassy is way overtaxed. So there's a lot left going on, and we're still trying to get people out of the country, obviously. There's a humanitarian crisis going on there right now. Winter is starting. The Taliban wanted to you know, take over the country, but shocker, didn't have a plan to run the country and doesn't seem super interested in doing it well. I think that's about where we are, and then there's some things that need to happen now. So first, what did I leave out as to where we are now?
1: So I think it's really important to to kind of... Differentiate between the the type the groups of people where they're at, right? So there's there's less than two thousand people I think at Doha right now because flights have stopped coming out of out of Kabul. There's a dispute between the Qataris and the Taliban that I think will be worked out soon, and then we'll we'll get back to the, the at least two flights a week to Doha, and those are USG sponsored flights into Doha into the Operation Allies Welcome pipeline. Uh, once you get to Doha, you have to wait. 21 days at least, probably more like 30, because we're going to start doing medical screening there and all this stuff. And then you come over to the U.S. Hopefully in-state will be you just come over to the U.S. like any other SIV would, and you don't have to go to a military base. SIV is Special Immigrant Visa. So SIVs are folks that served alongside us and have earned the right to get into the American uh, immigration pipeline become lawful permanent residents and then full American citizens. Those are the guys that acted as interpreters, and other, uh, other such roles. So right now, or as the program exists, when they fly here, they don't go to a base, they just go into whatever community they're gonna resettle into. Now, what's really important also to recognize is that all of these systems have been decimated under the Trump administration and over years of cuts to the state's budget, they were kind of on a skeleton crew. And now we did the largest humanitarian airlift in history, and now we've got this massive influx of people coming and it's going to be really hard to find them. And Jason, you've been a legislator. We've got a housing crisis in this country. But like I live in San Diego, California. and It's really bad here. But it's hard to resettle people in the Sioux Falls. So we've got that big challenge we've got to deal with. Now that's the Operation Allies Welcome Pipeline. There's also folks in the what they're calling the Emiratis Humanitarian City or EHC. And that's folks. There's a bunch of groups that drop people off there. Some of them had follow-on plans, but some of them didn't. And that's kind of like a that's the thing that we're going to have to talk about later on. And like when we do our, like hot wash, our internal hot washes with all these groups, we're to have a talk about that because that's, that was kind of harmful. And it was a lesson that we, we I think, all learned. Uh, but now it's trying to figure out what we do with these folks that don't really have a pathway here. And, the, and there are folks that do have a pathway here, and we're working through those, and we're getting them into the Operation Allies Welcome Pipeline as well. And then there's folks in all these various countries—Albania, Ireland, Canada, Mexico, etc.—that are just waiting for processing. So a lot of the stuff that Afghan Evac is working on right now is highlighting all of these issues. We tried to—we put out an open letter in December, and we kind of highlighted for government all of the things that we need to see to know that this is being taken seriously, and we're going to complete the mission.
2: I was going to say I'm—I'm I'm a signatory to the letter, and when I read it and signed it is when I texted Grace and Ravi and Edie and was like, okay, I wanna have Sean on the show. So lay it out for us. What is the stuff that needs to happen now to make this work the rest of the way and that our listeners can you know, call their members of Congress and say, hey, this,
1: this needs to happen. The big overarching story here is that we have to improve interagency coordination. We have to increase evacuation and resettlement capacity and throughput. And government needs to take on the roles that we've been filling. We can't put the phone down. We can't put this thing down. Because for all the years that we served in the military, all the years that our frontline civilians served overseas, all the years that our police, firefighters, attorneys, etc., have even known anything about how we engage overseas. We've said we leave no one behind. And then we left a bunch of people behind. We need government to assume those roles in line with the expectations of the American people and Afghan allies complete this mission. Those things like so what that means, like the specifics of what that means is that we need the executive branch. We need the president to appoint somebody and that person can live within the NSC, the National Security Council. He needs to appoint an interagency leader who has the respect of both state and the military. So diplomatic and military interests. Somebody who's worked in both of those things, somebody who has a deep understanding of Afghanistan. Somebody who's worked on both sides of this. There are people that have worked in government and worked on the private side of this. And somebody who's not afraid to kind of clank some cabinet secretary heads together and get them to work together, right? The team must be formally staffed. It has to be, this is a long term issue. And that's what we heard from the NSC that they believe this is a long term issue. So that's good.
2: Yeah, I think it's important for people to realize that initially this was seen as like, oh, it's a crisis. Let's put together a task force within state, a task force within NSC. We'll pull some people off their regular duties. They'll handle this for a while till it's over. And there has been, you know, over the last couple of months, a realization that oh no, this is an ongoing operation.
1: That's right. And to state's credit, they're figuring out how to make this a lasting and meaningful part of the State Department that doesn't go away until the job's done. It's just going to be a permanent line item until it's until the job is done. We want state to authorize virtual visa interviews and medical waivers. We want state and DoD to work with other countries to establish more lily pads right now cutteries require passports because of some questions about who was on the planes before. Uh, we would like to get it to a spot where there's two or three options for the different types of people
2: let me let me lay that out for people a little bit and like why that's important. Because, you know, it it sounds like, oh, no big deal. Okay, so they require passports. Well, like, first of all, this is Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. So if you don't have a current passport or don't or never had one because, you know, you're Afghan and you haven't made much money, you served in the Afghan military, maybe with the Americans, that kind of thing. Well, now you're supposed to go down to the Taliban-controlled passport office. In, in Kabul, for instance, and say, Hey, uh, this is me. And they're like, yeah, you're on our list of people to throw in jail. Right? So that's why it's important that we have a more lax like standard as to the ID. Not to mention my colleagues uh, have run into the problem of you've got a family, you've got them safe housed, you've got them ready to go. They're all passported. You did everything you need to do. Oh, and then they had a newborn who is an unpassported individual. And now that family is not going to escape on the next flight. Yep. Uh, and that's bonkers.
1: Well, and government partners are working to solve that from multiple angles.
2: Right. But but to your point of you need more than one place to land.
1: Well, and more than one place to land also means more capacity, right? And we want to make sure that we get everybody out who should come out. And like, we're not going to be able to get everybody out. We have to be very realistic about that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't get the folks that believed in the idea of America and put their lives on the line by serving next to us. Uh, we want to make sure that we're that we're not closing pathways to get into the country, that we're, that capacity here is not an issue. So whether that's a DOD safe haven or another facility, we need to have the capacity to, to support whoever it is that we're getting in. Uh, we want to make sure that DHS is waiving all humanitarian parole application fees and that they stop escalating the, the bar to get in there on humanitarian parole, even though we know that humanitarian parole is not the best way to get in. We'd like to see the U.S. Agency for International Development restore funding for Afghans in need of support And we want to see them deploy trained protection advisors as senior advisors. They can't do stuff, but they can advise on military bases overseas and leverage the full capability of USAID.
2: Well, I think another thing I just I want people to understand is like the Afghans that have been like manifested on fights and are waiting to get out and are safe housed. And, you know, that like it's private efforts like ours funding that. I mean, like they're they're being secured and kept safe and, and hidden and fed because america and, and these are people who like helped america and americans are having to fundraise to make that happen and on top of that it's wild mostly my my friends in this work i mean i'm back to my day job a lot of the time but all of us are having to fundraise just so that their kids don't go hungry in albania exactly uh, and so that their kids have coats because it's winter there now like the u.s government's not doing that
1: yep that's exactly right and what we're hoping is that we can figure out the appropriate mechanisms for the u.s government to to pay for that stuff and for the international community to pay for it
2: well and it also gets to your point about expanding capacity for bringing people here into the pipeline it goes to that point because the reason that we're still having to do that is because there's not enough people at the embassy in albania to process these people so they have to wait there but also there's you know we're the ones funding keeping them you know sustained there so anyway go ahead
1: yeah i mean you're, you're right we've got to we've got to solve for these, Very specific issues, right? And then before we get into the congressional asks, among the most important things, the thing that we start and end with every meeting, whether it's with the First Lady's team, the White House, uh, National Security Council, state or DOD, is the great impact that this has had on mental health for not just veterans, but frontline civilians, everybody involved in this and our new Afghan neighbors. And that means that VA can't just handle this. That means that we need... We need HHS, the Health and Human Services Agency, and we need the government agencies where a lot of these folks who have been involved in this from the government side work to stand up programs, to to catch people. Because like I said before, the trauma is coming and it's not pretty and we've just dealt with COVID for two years and we've got Omicron going. We've dealt with bitter partisan division and weird anti-vax bullshit and people were already at a tense place and then Now we've got this on top and we're all taking it on one of my shipmates from the thatch took his own life just a couple days ago. And I don't know why I'm sorry, but I know that that the world is in kind of a bad place right now. So regardless of this, we've got to do our, do our work on mental health and we're not going to stop pushing on this until we get that. So those are kind of the executive branch asks that we're looking for. Uh, When we pivot over to Congress, among the most important things is passing the Afghan Adjustment Act. What the Afghan Adjustment Act is for is to adjust the stats, allow all of these people that got humanitarian parole to come into the United States to get back in the line. Right now, they're outside of the line for lawful permanent residence and, and special immigrant visas, which means they're not on their way to U.S. citizenship. But it's our fault. We evacuated them, right? You and I and a bunch of people like, like us and the U.S. government, evacuated a bunch of these folks and brought them here. And now they're kind of outside of that. So the easy thing to do is to create a fix that brings them back into alignment. And there's precedence for that. We also need to make sure that that Congress is adequately funding the State Department and all other associated U.S. agencies with what they need to do this and do this right. We can't afford to half-ass this because our international reputation and the lives of dudes like you and I 20 years from now who are serving the military in the next conflict are dependent on this. We want to make sure that we expand SIV eligibility criteria as well to include lots of different buckets, and especially the Afghan Special Operations Forces, including some who went through the same training that our Green Berets, our Navy SEALs, and others go through. Our special operators consider those folks their brothers.
2: They're among the most wanted people in Afghanistan by the Taliban exactly. right now. I mean, them and their
1: families. Exactly. This is this is another issue that we highlight both in the executive branch side and legislative side, every meeting we go into. These folks have risked their lives fighting for their country alongside us. We trained them and we've got to get them over here. We asked for funding in the NDA to prioritize mental health and moral injury impact, a study on mental health and moral injury impact. We didn't get it. Um, And then we asked for other stuff through the NDA, uh, including a fund for reimbursement of private efforts or to to essentially fund what we've been doing and like pass it off to government. So, and look, we're always looking for creative, innovative solutions. I took a leave of absence from my job to focus on this and we're going to keep doing it until we can get to a spot where we can kind of declare victory, at least a detente and pivot over to resettlement. But those things that we just laid out are really important. And I want to, I want to underscore This last piece, if you know somebody in government, please tell them to avoid going to the predictable partisan nonsense that we always see on these issues. After the next election, there'll be plenty of time to do that. After this, after we get the fixes done, I don't even care if it's after the next election. But if we can get those fixes done that we need Congress to do, then do whatever you want with your partisan rhetoric. But we've got to get this thing done. It's not a time to divide. It's a time to stand together, united in our shared belief that the promise of America remains worth preserving.
2: If you're an Afghan ally of ours right now, who's sitting sitting in a safe house right now, uh, wondering if they're ever going to get out and what's going to happen, I promise you, they don't give a flying. They don't. They don't care who is to blame right now. Exactly. They just want to be safe, and and our responsibility is is to them. So I really appreciate everything that that you're doing. Where we'll put the link to um the open letter in the show notes but what is something people can do like we do this thing on the show grab an oar you're a sailor so it's right on theme um you know i i know you didn't use oars but you know what i mean uh, <laughs> uh, what what is something that people can do what's accessible what's an action they can take
1: call your members of congress but don't just call your members of congress call your mayors call your state legislatures tell them that these folks are welcome and tell them that this is important and if you have volunteer time that you can give, get a hold of us. We're easy to find. Contact at afghanevec.org. And we'll plug you into one of the organizations that's working on this. Or we'll bring you on to the internal team. We need people to remember that this matters. We're not going to let this go. And you can sign on to our open letter. We're still taking signatures. Uh, I know it'll be in the show notes. So uh, I, I just want to say thank you, Jason, for, for highlighting this and continuing to lift this issue up using your platform.
2: Thanks, man. You too. And, and thanks for everything you're doing majority 54 is a wonder media network production it's produced by grace lynch and Edie allard theme music provided by kimmet coleman special thanks to diana kander a lot of democratic candidates who didn't serve i'm sorry my son is knocking on the door hang on, hang on one second yes buddy true um created a robot that knocks on the door and then when you open the door it shoots little rockets at you uh, yes. And I guess he just wanted me <laughs> to see that. So, uh, all
0: right. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders, Zachary Carabell and executive director, Emma Lucas